Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Mr. Brisher's Treasure by H.G. Wells. This is first published in The Strand magazine, April 1899. And it's a story about two men in a pub having a conversation. Um, there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, it's set in the mid-19th century. It's not science fiction, but it was later republished in uh, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Um, and it does have a sort of a mysterious element. Uh, it keeps you guessing a little bit. Um, and I do note that um, in my researches for um, this podcast uh, that some teachers have assigned uh, questions like, what is the secret of Mr. Brisher's treasures? Uh, and students have typed that in, trying to find the answer. Um, <laughs> and um, when I think about that, it makes me think, aha, the title does have multiple meanings, at least one or two. And um, I think we should discuss those, but maybe you could give us a, a little story summary. Gladly. I was interested, Jesse, that you just said that it's a story about two men in a pub. Mm-hmm. One could say that, but I'm guessing that most people wouldn't. <laughs> um, the story is narrated to us, I guess, uh, by someone who meets Mr. Brisher in a pub. And most of the content of the story that we read that was printed in the Strand is Mr. Brisher telling his story uh, of what happened to him in the past or interacting with the narrator who queries him about these things. Uh, finally, that is, at first he's not interested, but Mr. Brisher clearly wants to tell his story. And so he looks conspiratorially around and decides, okay, I'm going to tell you. It's, uh, recently, I was at a, at a meeting at the end of which one of the participants came up to me and said, uh, I'm not going to be here for the next two weeks because I'll be out of town. And then she stopped and she, she looked uh, at me and the person I was with, you know, and, you know, both of us, I'm sure me and the other person whom she addressed were thinking, yes, you really want us to ask you where you're going, don't you? Um, but I decided out of some, some inner imp of the perverse. That's it. Thank you, Jesse. Not to. And after about eight, nine seconds of silence, the woman said, and I'll be going to, and then proceeded to tell us, you know, this wonderful, wonderful thing that she was doing, for which we are, of course, intended to be both envious and congratulatory. Uh, this is a story in which Mr. Brisher clearly wants to tell his story uh, to the narrator. And in as much as this text that we get printed in the Strand is about the desire to tell a story and the desire to present oneself, uh, which is what we see again and again in Mr. Brisher's narration of what happened to him once upon a time. It really is a story about two guys in a pub. 
um, one of whom gets sucked into listening to this and one of whom does the telling. And we know a number of things about them. For one, um, Mr. Brisher is an eager teller, the narrator unnamed, who's called I in the story, I so-and-so, is a reluctant at first uh, listener. We also know that there's an important class difference between the two of them, because Mr. Brisher, according to the way in which the words are spelled, speaks in a lower class uh, dialect. Um, He have nothing much to say, you know, but, Mm but according to the direct quotes, that the narrator reports from himself, he has a perfectly standard English dialect. Uh, In England in particular, it's clear that there is a a class difference that's associated with these things. Money is very much at the heart of this. They're in a pub. um, They're at a table for a game they call shove a penny, uh, which I assume is sort of like uh, flipping quarters or other kinds of tabletop games. One played, I played in the cafeteria in high school, um, money is in the games. Money is in the place. It's a place to buy drinks. Money is what the inner story is about, and class is what's going on on the outside. The story that Mr. Brisher uh, manages to tell the narrator is that once upon a time, when Mr. Brisher was really quite a a, cha- a young chap who cut quite a figure, or so Mr. Brisher says of himself, he was almost engaged. He was almost married. In fact, there are many women, even in this town, who would want to marry him, but he's too smart for them. And uh, well, I think we should read the first few paragraphs to see the tone that the narrator takes about Mr. Brisher, um, since it is, as you say, a story about these guys in the pub. But the inner story that Mr. Brisher tells is about the one time he actually got so almost caught by a woman that he was engaged. Of course, it turns out that he was almost caught by a woman because the woman's father had money. Um, Now, not real money, um, to many ways, people's way of thinking, but plenty enough money from Mr. Brisher's way of thinking, because Mr. Brisher, it turns out, as he says of himself, was always good at planning, but not too good at carrying out the plans. Uh, And he's out of work. The father of this girl whom he meets is not interested in having him as a son-in-law, but he persists. And in order to show his uh, industriousness to the potential father-in-law when he is down at the uh, the residence of these folks having a holiday. Um, he notices there's a wild bit of land at the bottom of their garden, meaning at the end of the yard, if we speak in an American English. And he offers to make it into a rockery, sort of to build what we would call a rock garden there. Mm-hmm. In so doing, he discovers a chest full of silver, half sovereigns. And uh, since we know that the house had previously been owned by a high-class robber, who in fact was finally caught, um, and that's why Mr. Brisher's fiance's father was able to buy that house at a good uh, price, um, suddenly he thinks, aha, 
I've got the money and you know what? I'll take it. I won't tell anybody about it. And then because I'm going to come into the family, it'll be a nice thing. It'll show that I belong in the family. So money is the reason to join the family. Money is the way to justify being in the family. Certainly this is the case from Mr. Brisher's viewpoint. But it turns out when he returns after the holiday is over, uh, with a, uh, a horse and a, a trap, a two-wheeled car, uh, wagon, um, to get the, the treasure in, in the night. It's a thunderstormy night, and he's clanking away out there, figuring the father will not hear anything. Suddenly, he sees um, silhouetted in the doorway by a flash of lightning, the father with his gun. And so he takes off leaving the treasure behind him, having nothing. He, in fact, doesn't return the horse and trap, so he's lost the two sovereigns he had to put down as deposit. And as far as we can tell from the story that we hear him tell the narrator, nothing much has happened to him in the rest of his life. He's just sort of been in some far-off town being a 'er ne'er-do-well. He certainly is described wearing clothing that hardly makes him seem that he's rolling in dough. Um, and the one high moment of his life is this almost, uh, almost uh, treasure. But uh, we know that, Mr. Brisher tells us, uh, what happens to the father of that house. Because Mr. Brisher keeps looking to see if, in fact, the father ever really did turn the money over to the state. The father was a sanctimonious fellow, a very hearty singer in church. In fact, so loud a singer that when he went off key, which he often did, half of the congregation followed him off key, Um, which is a good metaphor for what we're about to find out, which is that in the papers, according to Mr. Brisher, he's been arrested for passing counterfeit coins. So, in fact, he did find the treasure and he tried to capitalize on it, not by turning it over to the authorities, but by spending it. And so he also becomes a thief. Money is everywhere in this story. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the things like piety, visible, loud piety and uh, self-aggrandizement that the story is meant to satirize. The whole story then turning out to bring down everybody with this notion of counterfeiting at the end seems in part like a joke. Yeah. Um, and another story you can tell it's written by H.G. Wells because there's no angels in it. Nobody here comes out clean. I I had a lot of sympathy for Mr. Brisher uh, for a lot of the story, but in closer reading, I, I have less. I also thought that the father was pretty wise, and then turns out that, no, he's not. <laughs> and the girl um, that he wants to marry, uh, she's not wise wise enough to see that our Mr. Brisher's basically a horror, a horror of a, would be a horror of a husband. And um, it, it's strange that, that, H.G. Wells can write such compelling stories about basically terrible people <laughs> because they're they're all awful in here. The um, the treasure trove we think probably came from the burglar who previously owned the house. Um, the in in the UK I want to point this out because it's not a hundred percent 
the same around the world. But in the UK, especially England and Wales, they have a law that if you find uh, treasure, buried treasure on the land, it doesn't belong to the owner of the land, it belongs to the crown. But it has to be at least 50% gold or silver. If it's if it's less than that, you know, like if you find a, a trunk full of old shoes on your land, those are yours. But if you find a trunk full of uh, gold and silver coins, that belongs to the crown. And you might get an honorarium, you might get something for it, but uh, if you try to claim it as your own, uh, you're breaking the law. And you have a duty re to report it. So a lot of the, um, the plot points in this story come from, you know... Uh, him trying to conceal the fact that he's founded on someone else's land. Oh, doesn't even belong to that guy. It belongs to the cr the crown. So he has to conceal it not only from his his um, fa potential father-in-law, but also from the authorities. And he he becomes so excited at the prospect of having this treasure and bringing it to the family. That he does things like saying that he's the reason he's acting so strangely is that he's he's actually interested in another girl and he says that to his fiance. I'm sorry, he says that. Yeah. Well, could you show me that? I, sure. I recall that she infers that. He uh, says. I think he says that he says that to her. Yeah, let's see if I can find it. Um. Uh, it made me. Uh, this might not be it. Um. This is on page 473. It made me regular ill, and days I was that dull. It made Jane regularly uffy. You ain't the same chap you was in London, she says several times. I tried to lay it on her father and his snacks, but bless you, she knew better. What must she have but I'd got another girl on my mind? Said I wasn't true. Okay, I guess it's the other way around. Well... We had a bit of a row, but I was set that on the treasure, and I didn't seem to mind it a bit, anything she said. So, yeah, it's the other way around. She's saying maybe it's you've got another girl. Um, but, but he doesn't... Either, either way... Uh, either way, yeah. He, it's important that here again we see that it's the construction of a story that decides whether or not something is valuable or not. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting things to think about in his construction of the story. Uh, you wanted to talk about the opening paragraphs, and I think we should read them, but I just want to go with the opening sentence. Listen to this. You can't be too careful who you marry, said Mr. Brisher, and pulled thoughtfully on his fat-wristed hand, uh, with his fat-wristed hand on the lank mustache that hides his want of a chin. So, just that first quote. You can't be too, you can't be too careful who you, who you marry, so, who is he telling this to? Oh, some random guy in the pub. Why is he saying that? Because the girls' fathers are going to be troublesome? Or is he saying that because the girls are going to be troublesome? Or is he saying, you can't be too careful who you marry if you're a guy like me because I'm a horror. <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is not a, a catch, right? And yet, I think... I feel like when the father says some good things about this quote unquote jackanape, which is basically a monkey or a no good, no good Nick, you know, uh -huh. um, which is his, his term for Mr. Brisher to the daughter. 
you know, he actually he does a good job when he actually puts his back into it, right? He's complimentary. And I thought, oh, that's a point in the father-in-law's favor. Um, but they all go wrong. Everybody goes wrong. Right. I, I think um, you can't be too careful who you marry, uh, said Mr. Brescher and pulled thoughtfully with his fat-wristed hand at the lank mustache that hides his wand of chin. It's a terrific sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why we finally come on rereading to think that he said it. He did say it because it's his inference, and maybe his inference is because of his bad luck. Of course, it's all luck. He would never take responsibility himself for his fate. But I think it's also that Mr. Brisher is trying to present himself as wise. Mm. I mean, this is 1899 in England, and Mr. Brisher is talking to somebody who we know because of his his accent is higher class than Mr. Brisher. We can also suppose that he has better clothing and looks better since he is using uh, comments about the mustache, the want of chin, the fat wristed hand to suggest that he can tell that this fellow is vain, deceptive and lazy. Right. So there's a lot of critique going on uh, right in that first sentence. So the person who makes that critique, the person who doesn't say this to Mr. Brisher, but just sitting there looks so different from him. That's someone I think maybe Mr. Brisher wants to demonstrate his wisdom to. Mm. In 1899, somebody of the narrator social class, a man of a certain age, is quite likely to be or have been married. And Brisher is justifying his not being married by showing that it is wiser not to be married as he learns from experience. He does a good job with the rockery, Mm -hmm. but it's also interesting that the reason he volunteers to make the rockery, uh, not to look for treasure, he's just trying to ingratiate himself with the would-be father-in-law, is that he did it once, right? If he did something once, that was enough for him to master it from his viewpoint. It's not as if he's a stonemason. He did this once. As far as we can tell, Mr. Brisher never does anything repeatedly, never holds down any occupation, never masters any relationship, but he's still trying to... uh, be the ancient mariner there and explain, you know, to somebody else who has once been a wedding guest um, what he's done. He's insistent upon it, too, if we can believe the narrator, because the very next line, you know, he says, it ties his wanted mustache. That's why I, I ventured, yes, said Mr. Brisher, with a solemn light in his bleary blue-gray eyes, moving his head expressively and breathing intimately at me. There's lots as have had a try at me, many as I would name in this town, but none have had it. None. So he's building himself up. He's using that accent. But notice, of course, that Wells has shown us that Mr. Brisher cuts off the narrator in the very first sentence the narrator has included in this sentence, in this story of his own. Um, there is such a strong sense of characterization here that Wells has managed to create by giving us the viewpoint of this narrator. He's an extraordinary writer. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, one of the things that I like so much about him, or I should say his writing, um, is the way in which it reflects, if you think about it, extraordinary erudition. But if you don't think about it, it just goes down really smoothly. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think, oh boy, isn't this erudite. For example, um, when Mr. Brisher and Jane, that's her name, we're told Jane, uh, plain one supposes, um, they had wanted to get oh, married. Oh yeah, no, she's explicitly said by Mr. Brisher, he says she's she's not that, not great looking, but she has a she's really nice. Right. She's really nice. And, and and I should point out Mr. Brisher in the very first sentence is described as having a want of a chin, right? So th- these are not physically attractive people either of them. Correct. Correct. So they could they could, you know, maybe they would fit together quite well in the world's viewpoint. On page 470, um on the the second column where we've just had some discussion about uh, Jane, or her name was Jane, um, used to play it, that is the piano, uh, where she plays hymns, just what her father would have wanted on Sundays. Um, and they're talking, he's talking, Mr. Brisher is telling the narrator that they want to get married. Now, you know, there was a sort of itch, said Mr. Brisher. We wanted to marry, me and Jane did, and get things settled. But E, that is the would-be father-in-law, said I had to get a proper position first. Consequently, there was an itch. Now, I think, at least maybe it's my dirty mind, Jesse, in the first sentence of that paragraph, they wanted to get married. Um, now, you know there was a sort of itch. Mm. You know, it's like the seven-year itch. Mm. You know, sexual arousal. Mm. But then, you know, we wanted to get married, me and Jane did, and get things settled. Uh-huh. They want to scratch that itch. Mm. But he said I had to get a proper position first. Consequently, there was an itch, yeah. which, of course, means there was a hitch. Right. This was something that, that stopped the plans from going forward. By not putting an apostrophe in front of the word itch when it appears— it's not at all clear that that word itch has a second non-sexual meaning until we get later in the paragraph and realize that there's a hitch to their marriage plans. That kind of richness of language, which even if one doesn't notice it consciously, I think plays on us unconsciously Mm -hmm. as we read, is rife in Wells's writing everywhere, even in a a story like this, which is fundamentally a joke. And the last lines, I love this. Mr. Brisher reports that he's noticed in the paper that the father-in-law, the would-be father-in-law, has been arrested for issuing counterfeit coins, he said. Counterfeit coins! You don't mean to say, the narrator says, and again is cut off by Mr. Brisher, you don't mean to say, yes, it, bad, quite a long case they made of it, but they got him, though he dodged tremendous. <laughs> Traced as having passed, oh, nearly a dozen bad off crowns. And you didn't, no fear. And it didn't do him much good to say it was treasure trove. Now, okay, he couldn't get away with, you know, saying, well, it's just something that I found, the laws, and, and you can give us a better explanation of that, I'm sure. But I'd like to point out that that last sentence, and it didn't do him much good to say it was treasure trove, 
suddenly makes us realize that the word trove actually has a meaning. It's not just a big bunch of treasure. In fact, it comes from trouvé in French. It's trésor trouvé. It's found treasure, mm-hmm. which all those laws are about. And this doesn't make grammatical sense, this sentence, unless you read the word trove as an adjective meaning found. And it didn't do him much good to say it was treasure found, mm-hmm. or in the English order, found treasure. Um, it's incredible to me how Wells has such erudition and he imparts it to us so gracefully. You know, in his experiment in autobiography, which he wrote when he was about 50, I think, um, he reflects on his career up to that point. And at that point, he had been uh, successful as a as a fiction writer, a journalist, um, a playwright. Um, he had been uh He'd used his pen in many ways. He'd been a public lecturer. He'd been uh, influential in founding uh, the Fabian Society and having political impact. And he says that as he looks back over his career, the one job that he has had his entire life was teacher. And I must say, the way he uses language here, and even at the end when he makes the joke, making us realize that we have a nugget trouvé. Mm. We've just learned something and gotten it, found it here unexpectedly. There's a, a wonderful, generous uh, impulse behind Wells making teaching such a skillful activity and doing it so well that we just all lap it up. Yeah. I, I I want to go back to that question that the students are all searching for the answer for. You know, the the teachers has given them some assignment to read this story, and then they have to answer the questions. What was Mr. Fisher's treasure? Um, and I I I assume that the question should be answered by it was a a box of silver found in the backyard, right? Something like that. But um. I think maybe bonus points should be given if <laughs> if they find the other treasure, the real treasure, not the uh, the imposter treasure or the counterfeit treasure uh, of the silver, but the treasure of what he would be would have married into if he hadn't have screwed it up. Um, now, obviously, the father-in-law is not perfect, um, but the description of the father's setup and I guess the family setup, Jane's family setup is a treasure. I want to read these two paragraphs uh, on page 470. She lived at home with her father and mother, quite the lady in a very nice little house with a garden and respectable, uh, sorry, remarkable, respectable people. They was rich. You might call them at a most they owned their own house got it out of the building society and cheap because the chap who had had it before was a burglar and in prison and they'd add a bit of free old land freehold land right that's great and some cottages and money invested all nice and tight they was what you'd call snug and warm i tell you i was on capital o, 
Furniture, too. Why, they'd had a piano. Jane, her name was Jane, used to play it Sundays, and it was very nice. She played, too. There wasn't hardly an im tune in the book she couldn't play. Many's the evening we'd met and sung hymns there, me and her and the family. Her father was quite a leading man in chapel. You shouldn't have seen him Sundays. Uh, you shouldn't have seen him Sundays interrupting the minister and giving out hymns. He had gold spectacles, I remember, and used to look over him at you while he sang heartily. Hearty. He was always great on singing hearty to the Lord, and when he got out to, out of tune, half the people went after him always he was that sort of man and to walk behind him in his nice black clothes is that was a brimmer made one regular proud to be engaged to such a father-in-law and when the summer came i went down there and stopped a fortnight so he he actually says engaged to the father-in-law right he's almost like i'm gonna hook or i'm gonna hitch my wagon to this guy right and they got what a setup, right? They've got cottages on the land. They can he can live there and just loaf about all the time. This is going to be wonderful, right? Oh, yeah. What a, I mean, what he's done is screwed up the only chance of any kind of happiness he could have really had by going for the silver. And in a way, the story he tells to the father, which we I don't think we mentioned thus far, um, he says to the, he's sort of feeling out the father at the dinner table. He says, um, let me tell you this story about a, a man who borrowed another man's jacket and found a, a coin in the pocket. Um, who does the coin belong to? And the father-in-law, he rages and says, of course, you would have a friend who would do something like that. And he says, hey, I'm just... I'm just saying, uh, you know, I wasn't sure that it was right that he keep the coin, right? And what what's so brilliant about this is that later on we find the the, the father-in-law, and I guess we could have figured it out from the clues earlier on. He's not a great guy either, right? <laughs> he's he's gone and kept that treasure, that found treasure, that treasure that rightly belongs to the crown. Render under unto Caesar, says the father quote in the bible right mm -hmm. and what does he do he doesn't render at all <laughs> right he, he starts issuing coins you, you're right about the the early clues to that um one of the clues is uh that he got the house because the previous owner had been a robber mm -hmm. if you think about that what it means is he made money off the fact that a robber had lived there yep Right. So he is the, the father in law would be father in law is profiting by somebody else's larceny. Uh, money is here everywhere. And the class differences that the language is meant, I think, to reinforce begins with the very first line. Mr. Brisher says you can't be too careful who you marry. Now, the italicized who may, in fact, have to do with, you know, I have a story about having. Um, been engaged to this father-in-law, a wonderful observation, Jesse, but also by italicizing the word who. This is 1899 England, and this is the writing of an erudite individual in a 
fairly um, high middle class journal, uh, The Strand. It reminds us that Mr. Brisher doesn't say what he should have said, which was, you can't be too careful whom you marry. (laughs) Exactly. So there's a joke at the beginning and the end. And as we look through the middle, there's always more to say. (laughs) And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.